something will come out of this that actually you probably would not have done had it not been for that crisis. Leadership and opportunity in times of crisis, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today, we have a special episode for you. Our president and CEO, Joe Pfeiffer, is interviewing Sergio Melgar, the CFO at UMass Memorial Healthcare. Sergio was featured in the second part of our Healthcare 2030 series, which is out today. So if you haven't had a chance to read that piece, I highly recommend checking it out. Today on the podcast, Sergio discusses elements of that report and much more. I think you'll enjoy it. Here's Joe. Well, today I am pleased to be speaking with Sergio Melgar. Now, Sergio is the Executive Vice President and CFO at UMass Memorial and is featured in the second part of our Healthcare 2030 series discussing the workforce of the future. So first, thank you, Sergio, for, for participating in the Workforce of the Future project and welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure joining you, Joe. I'm really looking forward to this discussion for all kinds of business reasons, but I want to start off with something a little bit more fun. You know, I'm, I've been involved in soccer for a long time. I coached for my kids uh, for 18 years through all kinds of travel soccer and spent many weekends uh, in Cincinnati and in Detroit and different places for tournaments. And so one of my kids played the D3 soccer. So I have uh, you know, some experience there. And you have a soccer career that's of particular interest to me. So tell me a little bit about your history with soccer. Well, I uh, was fortunate enough to um, get involved with soccer in the early years of soccer in the U.S. I was uh, in one of the early years of ASO, A-Y-S-O, mm-hmm. as it's known. And I was uh, a pretty good player, good enough to play uh, at UCLA. Uh, was one of the elite and it still is one of the elite soccer programs in the country for sure and i was a starter as a freshman which it may have been the top of my career (laughs) (laughs) i i couldn't realize beyond that Uh, but ucla being a great academic school as well i used uh, my brain as well as my feet in my life i still have a long love of, uh, of soccer and i stay pretty close to the sport yeah, that's terrific. It probably, you know, collegiate sports the way it ought to be is a, is a, a good mechanism for, for all kinds of things, including the education, which often gets forget in those D1 environments. Division one sports is not a walk in the park. It's a very time consuming. So how did that discipline help you in your career? Yeah, actually, you know, we were talking about UCLA in particular because UCLA is also considered, I believe, one of the number one public university in the country. UCLA Division One soccer is as high as, as probably one can get. The combination of the two is pretty special mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the commitment that one has to have. And so when asked about what did I learn and what did I get, what benefits, certainly uh, it developed uh, different organizational skills that I may have otherwise. Um, it instilled uh, a sense of commitment and multitasking. Uh, that probably got elevated to a completely different level. Uh, you had to deal with incredible adversity because not everything was always going the right way. The in- tremendous investment that you have to make uh, at all across all fronts uh, and waiting for that payoff to come, not necessarily immediately. And, you know, today everybody wants an immediate payoff. Sure. That's not what happens uh, when you're playing Division One sports. 
And you sort of have to learn to make the best of every situation that's out there. But I think ultimately the biggest lesson for me was really learning about team success. And that's the one thing that today that I will probably value and treasure the most uh, is really working as a team. That, that's clearly what I got out of it first and foremost. Yeah, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, I know that that learning environment can happen in all kinds of different disciplines, but I have a particular you know, bias toward the athletic side for those very lessons. So I appreciate that. Well, I suppose we shouldn't talk about soccer all, our whole time here. We probably should get down to business. And I, I want to start with, you know, I look back at your career and you, um, you've had a several time periods dealing with turmoil. It was an earthquake when you were at UCLA, uh, UK, you were cash strapped back in the recession at 2008 time period. While you were at Christus, I read about the contract negotiations in Chile that you know, where you had language and cultural barriers. Uh, and then finally, UMass, when you started there, or not long thereafter, you were in the junk bond status and you needed to recover from that. So these are issues that maybe not exactly what others have, but certainly, you know, a lot of us in the industry deal with time periods of turmoil. What lessons from all these situations could you share with our listeners? Well, certainly all of those things that you mentioned in most people's careers might be one of any one of them might be a career defining event. And whether fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure which of us those it is. Uh, I've been involved in three really monumental events. I would say that probably the decision making process has been uh, really instrumental and in, it does kind of go back to those four years of college as an undergrad and playing soccer, how compact it was and all the decision-making I had to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so my brain got wired for decision-making. And when making decisions, one has to be quick, but not hurried about decisions because you can't wait too long, but you got to make them. But if you make him too much in a hurry, you may be creating more damage. So that finding that right balance uh, is very, very important. So gathering information quickly is very, very important in realizing that you have short, mid and long term decisions that you have to make during that moment of crisis. Some things you have to decide now, some you've got to know, you know what, that's a decision we have to put off for the midterm and some are going to be long term. Also, in any of these, uh, there is always the upside, which is all these crises create opportunities. And so something will come out of this that actually you probably would not have done had it not been for that crisis. Certainly UCLA was completely changed as a result of the earthquake. Sure. It created the new Ronald Reagan Medical Center, created what is now UCLA Health and one of the premier health centers in the world. Uh, at UK, because of the discipline that we needed to have during that moment in time, I think they, we became a much better management group. Uh, and certainly uh, at UMass uh, Memorial, it has been absolutely key to us really evolving into a perhaps a performer now that is beginning to realize the potential that probably was there from the very beginning, but had not been realized. So a lot of it is in that, that decision making and, and figuring out how to execute on decision making. Be quick, but do not hurry. That's a quote from the legendary John Wooden. Um, Absolutely. Legendary basketball coach. One of my favorite quotes. I, I love that. I, I'm sure that was probably what you were referring to. And it's just really profound. You know, another element in this Workforce of the Future report where you contributed, you talked about remote work. 
including the fact that many staffers at UMass were sent home at the beginning of the pandemic and are now working remotely indefinitely. And I hear that story across the country. Then your board has discussed the idea of recruiting staff from other parts of the country as a, you know, as a cost-saving measure. But you look at the other side of the coin as well and that you want to be competitive and retain your existing staff. So what are your concerns about recruiting and retention in a time when both employees and employers have these options and there's just a lot of movement around employment movement and a lot of just change of attitudes about remote workforce? How do you react to all of that? Well, certainly I see work from home as both an advantage, disadvantage. Uh, It can go either way. Uh, Obviously, one of the problems with it is if somebody's remote, just how loyal are they to you or how much traction do they have to your organization? Mm -hmm. I think that can only be solved if you retain a level of excellence and quality to your organization and you're seen as treating your workforce uh, better than the other folks are treating their workforce. And we certainly do that, I think, through our benefit structure. We have among the best benefits uh, there are, certainly in New England and probably across the country. Uh, We have a culture of respect. Uh, We train people on having a culture of respect. Uh, we empower people. I mentioned that. Uh, that's key to, to our success. And, and we reward people to the extent we can. You will still have the risk that your very good people can still get promoted somewhere else. And I don't see that necessarily as a problem. I don't mind if somebody that works for us gets promoted somewhere else and gets elevated. And it'd be great to see a lot of people from UMass Memorial working at other places in the future. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. The one huge advantage for us is that it has allowed us to, I think, retain many people that may have otherwise gone somewhere else. Uh, They perhaps had family issues and they needed a more flexible environment. And so working from home has been key for their stability on a personal level. We actually started the work from home process prior to COVID. So it was not a reaction to COVID. Mm -hmm. It actually made the transition easier. So when we actually had to send everybody home that needed to go home, it was an easier transition. IT was ready for it. We already had some processes in place, so it worked effectively. One of the key things that I have seen in the last now six months is the ability to retain people that are on the latter part of their career that really want to uh, perhaps move out of state, but they can still do much of their work remotely. And so they are now willing to stay employed and stretch their career another, whether it's a year, two years, three years, because they are able to then start that transition instead of cold turkey. You know, I'm moving to Florida and Mm -hmm. I'm done. I'm I'm done with uh, New England winters. Uh, They can transition that over a period of time. The challenge is you got tax issues, workers comp, all these other benefits, things. So we're trying to figure out how we're going to do that, just like all other employers around the country. Obviously, it's a cumbersome situation if you have like from West Coast to East Coast. Mm -hmm. Time zones. If you're up and down the the East Coast, it's much easier. We already, because we're a small state, have had to deal with border states and people that have lived in New Hampshire, Connecticut, Vermont, and work in Massachusetts. Now we're having to really look at, okay, this could actually stretch all the way to Florida Mm -hmm. in the Midwest. 
it gives you now access to hundreds of millions of people instead of only tens of millions. So that's a great opportunity for me. Uh, so I, I'm more looking at the positive side of this because we have a fairly higher rate structure. We're, we're at the higher end of the wage curve. It's more likely that we will be able to retain more folks than lose folks. Sure. Uh, and we'll be able to attract from other lower salary market. So I, I'm seeing this more, more as a plus than a negative for us. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of very tangible things like compensation and benefit packages and those things that you mentioned. But gosh, what I hear loud and clear through many of your answers today is, is more on the intangible side. And you talk about respecting people and not having barriers. The phrase I like to use in our organization is we're going to treat adults like adults and just let them do their jobs and not be hung up on, you know, are you at your computer at an X, you know, hour of the day? Um, you know, and it's those kinds of things to allow people to do their jobs. And I kind of hear that tone. It's different from an association perspective than a health system. Don't get me wrong. But there's a common element in there of when you talk about treating your employees with respect, a lot of times it's, again, allowing, you know, just treating adults as adults. And, and, and with that comes, uh, some flexibility with that comes a responsibility and and then you know that plays into it as well yeah absolutely and we actually have employee engagement as a key executive goal mm -hmm. good we, we've had it uh, my whole time at umass memorial that's part and partial of what we want to do because mm -hmm. uh, we understand it's it's the most valuable asset in the organization is the the employees that we have sure and we've actually we actually have arguments over whether a, in a pyramid of success, whether you put patients first or employees first, it's a mind game. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah they're yeah. both important. You know, yeah. which, which, which ones ahead uh, are the, the patients first or the employees first? So we, we try to basically say, you know, they're both important. They're yeah, both the answer important. to that is yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And, you know, and then you don't have to, well, who says you have to pick one over the other, you know, because they're both important. But I understand the debate and, and how, why that is. Well, in a true North triangle, you have to put one at the top. I understand. Yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's the problem with putting management into some of those disciplines is that forces you to make those decisions where maybe you don't have to. I don't know. So uh, maybe my this is my last question or exit question. I'm hearing so much about burnout, and it's a topic we discuss often um, regard to clinical workers. And I hear that in spades, and you know, we could go off on that, you know, especially as the stresses of the pandemic keep increasing. You know, there's some sense of, of despair, you know, that comes from the clinical side. So I'm hearing it in spades, but I'm while I hear more of it on the clinical side, burnout and pandemic stress is not limited to clinical workers. And so what are your thoughts on the best ways to care for your employees in a healthcare organization in terms of burnout, um, no matter what area they're working in? Well, we certainly at UMass Memorial have been very much aware of that. And we've tried to communicate as much as possible and we actually have executives that do rounding across the entire system so that we try to be uh, in touch uh, with all of our workforce. So it's not just, uh, as you mentioned, just the direct line clinical workers. There is tremendous stress uh, on the entire infrastructure. Uh, there are critical workers that you never see because they're the ones that maybe run the power plant. And when you have a problem in any of your uh, utilities, any of your infrastructure, that can be absolutely chaotic. 
And they, so these individuals can have tremendous stress. And we've had, you know, pipes break. We've had problems in the physical structure. And you may not even be aware that, oh, my God, uh, that's a terrible thing. And the pressure that is uh, on these individuals, IT systems, uh, you know, your IT folks, maybe you never see them. But boy, when the system is down mm-hmm. and they, they got to figure something out or when you have a potential cyber crisis, the, right now, one of the biggest uncertainties we have is what is our cost of cyber liability from sure. the insurance perspective going to be? So I can tell you those individuals are under tremendous stress sure. uh, right now. So it can be in places where you, you haven't even thought of that. You know, supply chain was kind of behind the scenes for a long, long time. Maybe, they, you know, they were just moving uh, PP&E here and there. And then all of a sudden, a year and a half ago, they became the most critical link. Without them, there is no care that takes place. And uh, they're, they're basically the last defense uh, to keep our employees uh, healthy. So all of a sudden, they become uh, the front line. Yeah. Uh, so any employee can become the front line real quick. We've been very fortunate, like on, on the revenue side, our business folks, but I can see that, you know, if the system was uh, talking about 10 years ago when the performance wasn't good and AR was uh, running into the 70, 80 days, all of a sudden, that's your front line because if you don't, if you don't have that money, <laughs> that, <laughs> becomes, <trust> me. <laughs> that becomes a real problem. So mm-hmm. I can come up with scenarios where anybody can be on the front line and be basically at the ultimate stress. And it's not to say that they're always at that level, but we try to keep um, mindful that we have to stay in touch with our, our workers and make sure that we appreciate them and we understand what their, their pain points are. We cannot solve the fact that COVID is here and that we're potentially being overwhelmed with patients and problems. All we can do is try to make the best of, of the situation as, as best we can. Yeah, that's just so true. Well, Gosh, I, just the last comment on that topic. I was in a conversation with a physician just the other day, and he and he was an association leader, and he said that he, you know, that we're over this last couple of months, just as a society, we're moving from this like like an acute uh, illness management into a chronic condition management in terms of this pandemic. I think this is going to be with us for a long time, and and we're going to have to manage in a different way. And managing a, a chronic illness is different from an acute illness, and so I. I think you're right. And it comes down to being in touch. Are you in touch with your peeps, right? Uh, it, sometimes it's uh, the concepts are simple. And yet, in a large health system with so many employees, that's really challenging to do. So I appreciate I appreciate that. But thank you, Sergio, for just so many pearls of wisdom that you've given us today. I I, I love talking to our system CFOs. And man, this was just, uh, it's just terrific talking with you. So thank you for contributing to our content and the workforce of the future. And thank you for spending your precious time with me today. My pleasure. And glad uh, we could have a, a real nice conversation about our the trials and tribulations of uh, today's healthcare world. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. We'll be back next week with a new regular episode, so please do subscribe so you don't miss it. In the meantime, be sure to read the latest in the Healthcare 2030 series, Workforce of the Future, on our website, hfma.org. 
And as always, if you want to talk with our team, you can email us at podcast at hfma.org. 